Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Pam Jenoff at Dakota County Library, Galaxy. Pam Jenoff is the author behind The Commandant's Girl in 2007, one of the past decade's best-received works of historical romance. After the Nazis occupy Poland in 1939, young Jewish bride Emma Bau is forced to flee her home and husband and assume a new identity. In hopes of gaining intel for the Polish resistance movement, she becomes a secretary and love interest of a high-ranking German official. A brave decision with unexpected consequences. Jenoff has since penned half a dozen more novels against the backdrop of war-torn Europe, including The Diplomat's Wife, The Things We Cherished, The Ambassador's Daughter, The Other Girl, The Winter Guest, and The Last Summer at Chelsea Beach. Her newest, The Orphan's Tale, debuted in February. It follows Noah, a young woman who becomes pregnant by a German soldier, is ostracized from her community, and joins up with a traveling circus. One of my very first book events was at the University of Pennsylvania bookstore, and they scheduled it during spring break. So I never expect when I stand up that there will necessarily be anybody present. And I'm really, really grateful to you for being here tonight. So what I would like to do is I'd like to give you a little background on my journey to becoming a writer, and I'll take you sort of through how I got to here today. I'd love to talk to you about my newest book, The Orphan's Tale, which is just about five weeks old now. And then I'd like to leave the rest of the time for questions and really hear what is most of interest to you. My journey began about 21 years ago when I was sent to Krakow, Poland as a diplomat for the US State Department. Now, I didn't go to Poland to work on matters related to the war. I went to stamp visas and passports and help Americans who got in trouble over there. But it was a very unique moment in time because Poland and the neighboring countries had just come out of decades and decades of communism. And all during those years when their free speech was stifled and they were cut off from the West, they could never have an open conversation about the war or resolve any of those issues. And so when you get to the mid-1990s, all of the issues from World War II were frozen in time. These important issues of anti-Semitism, 
preserving the concentration camps and returning property that had been taken from people during the war, they were all unresolved. This became very important because Poland and its neighboring countries wanted to join NATO, wanted to join the European Union, and politically that was not possible unless they made progress on their issues from the war. So I arrived in Krakow and I was a young girl in my early 20s, so everyone can do the math how old I am, and um, I was by myself over there, halfway around the world from my family, before cell phones, before the internet, and so I was completely cut off in that part of the world. And I myself being Jewish, I gravitated toward the surviving Jewish community in Krakow, the Holocaust survivors. And I would go to their synagogue every Friday night and to their rabbi's house every Saturday for lunch. And these people, most of them were elderly, became like grandparents to me. The US consulate, seeing my relationship with these people, said, okay, you go handle all those issues from the war. We were only eight Americans in Krakow, so it wasn't terribly formal. For the next two and a half years, that was my job. When Elie Wiesel was upset because Polish Boy Scouts with good intentions put stars and crosses on the field where his family had died at a concentration camp, I went out there and tried to work it out. When then First Lady Hillary Clinton wanted to tour Auschwitz, I spent a week there with the Secret Service. Anything that needed to be done on the ground, I tried to help with. I want to tell you that it was very rewarding work. We were able to bring together Polish teachers and American teachers so they could learn how to really teach their children about what had happened during the war because they had never done it. At the same time, it was really difficult to be on the ground over there having hard conversations about who had done what during the war. My own personal life in Poland was similarly conflicted. For example, it was a rich and rewarding experience to be able to live and worship openly in defiance of all the Nazis had tried to achieve there. On the other hand, I was living in such close geographic proximity to the war that in order to get my car fixed at the mechanic, I had to drive past the camp from Schindler's List. And you may imagine how you'll feel the first time you visit a gas chamber. But when you walk into the same one for the 50th time, what toll does that take on your personal psyche? And so the challenge of my years in Poland was, how can I live every day appropriately solemn for what has taken place here, but not have every day feel like a graveyard? I left Poland. I did not continue on in the diplomatic service. I came back home and I went to law school. But I was very moved and changed by what I had experienced there. And I knew I wanted to write about it. And not just anything, I, it was going to be a novel. You may say, well, how did you know that? Going back in time even further, I was one of those little kids who was always going to be a writer. And it was never short stories. It was never poems. It was always going to be books. But through the many years when I was in school, I was in Europe, and I really had plenty of time to write, I never quite got started. And you know what I mean, everyone has one project in their closet that they would like to get off the ground and can't. And for me, that was the novel. The turning point in my life was 9-11. I came back from State Department, 
and I went to law school. I graduated from Penn in Philadelphia, and I started practicing law on September 4th, 2001, exactly one week before 9-11 happened. And on that fateful day, I had an epiphany. You'll forgive me for being, using a flip expression to describe such a serious day, but I call my life epiphany, dear God, I don't want to die at the law firm. And what I meant by that was that while being a lawyer was a fine and admirable profession, I had always had a deeper dream of being a novelist. And I'd never realized my dream. Had I been a 9-11 victim, I never would have realized my dream. I did not have forever, and I had to get started right away. I took a course at Temple Night School in Philadelphia. If you've ever been there, it's right in the middle of the city at 15th and Market. And the course was called write your novel this year. <laughs> true story. And I looked, and true story even, they later changed that to write your novel this month. Now, I would not have taken that course. That sounds really scary. But I took write your novel this year, and I started working on a book. And it opened with an image in my mind of a girl walking a child across Krakow's main market square. Those of you who have read some of my books might recognize that as the opening scene from The Commandant's Girl. As I was writing the book, something very serendipitous happened. On a train from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia, I met two very well-known Holocaust survivors, man and wife. They've both since passed on, and I've never named them because I don't know if they would mind. And I said, oh, I'm writing a book set in Krakow during the war. The woman said to me, surely you know the story of the Krakow Jewish resistance. I froze because although I had just come back from years of living in Krakow, I had never heard of a Jewish resistance there. We've all heard about Warsaw because of Mila 18, but no one had heard of Krakow, no one had written about it because everyone who was part of that resistance movement died during the war. I went back to Poland and I was amazed to find a rich history of uprising and resistance on the very streets where I had lived and worked. And that true story became the historical underpinning for the Commandant's Girl. I would like to tell you that it was a hop, skip, and a jump from there to Common Good Books or um, you know, whatever we said, whatever, whatever story I would have said back you know, in the day. Um, However, there were two catches in my plan. The first is that although I was now a serious writer, I was also a newly minted attorney at a big city law firm with $1,000 a month in student loan debts that I had to repay. So I couldn't just go off and write in a castle now that I was serious about it. It had to coexist with my day job. So I used to write my books from five to seven in the morning every day before I went to the firm, for many, or, you know, before I went to work each day. That, ha that persisted for many, many years. Now I have three small children, ages eight and under, and as you know, you don't get five to seven in the morning. You have to find other times, but that was the drill. The other catch was that it took five years and 39 publisher rejections until the last known publisher on earth, 11 months later, <laughs> Wait, what's today? It's not yet. April, it was like April 7th, 2005 when I got the call. I still remember. Um, but the last publisher, we didn't even know they were still reading it, made a tiny little offer for Commandant's Girl. 
Now that it's gone pretty well, lots of people in publishing like to act like they knew it all along, but I have rejection letters from all of them. I wrote Commandant's Girl, then I wound up writing a sequel to Commandant's Girl called The Diplomat's Wife, and some of you asked me about that before the program tonight. I don't ever set out to write sequels. I have sort of a love-hate relationship with them. They just kind of happen. Um, but I wrote a sequel to Commandant's Girl, and more recently I wrote a prequel to it called The Ambassador's Daughter. I've written any number of books in between, and if there's one I haven't spoken about tonight, you feel free to ask me during the Q&A, but I'd like to sort of go forward in time and talk to you about my latest book, which is The Orphan's Tale. It's actually my ninth book, um, and it's a little bit different. The Orphan's Tale does not come from my personal experiences in Europe. Rather, it comes from two true stories that inspired me. I found them in the Yad Vashem, that's the Holocaust Museum in Israel, in the virtual archive. They have a database of the righteous, and the righteous are people who are proven to have saved lives. In that database, I found two incredible stories. The first, and you'll forgive me, it's horrific, um, is what's called the train of unknown children. And it was a train of babies taken from their parents to young to know their own names and headed for a concentration camp. The other story was a remarkable, uplifting tale of the rescuer circus. And this was a German circus that sheltered Jews. I had never heard of such a thing before. And so I combined these stories to create the orphan's tale. And in my book, Noah is a young Dutch girl. She's about 16, and she's been kicked out by her own parents because she became pregnant by a German soldier. She's been forced to give up her own child, and she is living above a rail station in Germany alone, cleaning that station to earn her keep when she finds the train of unknown children and a boxcar of babies. And in a moment of fateful impulse, Noah snatches one of the babies, rescues a baby, and flees into the night. She finds shelter with the German circus that is rescuing Jews. The circus owner says that she can stay, but in order to blend in, she's going to have to become part of the circus and decides that she should become of the, part of the aerialist routine. And she has to learn the flying trapeze from Astrid. Astrid is the other woman in the story. Astrid is about 39, and she is from a Jewish circus family. This was incredible in my research. I discovered these centuries of Jewish circus dynasties before the war in Europe. I'd never heard such a thing. So Astrid had been born to one of those families, which she had left when she married, went off to marry a German officer in Berlin. The German officer was ordered to divorce his wife because she was Jewish. And this also really happened. German soldiers were sent home from the front to divorce their Jewish spouses. And so when her husband casts her out, Astrid came back and finding her own circus family gone, she had, is in hiding with this German circus. She is none too happy to see Noah. First of all, she doesn't think Noah can learn the trapeze. She, doesn't, she thinks the girl's bringing unwanted attention and uh, she doesn't believe Noah's story. So this is really about the friendship between these two women, uh, whether they can save each other or whether their secrets will destroy them both. I call The Orphan's Tale the book that it broke me to write because of that scene with the babies on the train. I knew that in, in order to write that, I was going to have to metaphorically put my own three small children on that train to do the scene justice. And I couldn't write for a long time afterward. About a week ago, I checked this other email account that I have for some author stuff, 
And I found in that account an email from one of the one of the real women who inspired my story from her descendant. So there was an actual Jewish woman hiding with the circus who inspired Astrid. And I received an email from her niece, because the Astrid woman in real life had died in 2015 just saying thank you. So that was really very special. Um, another really cool thing, um, I used to say that I could not hit a bestseller list with a baseball bat. But um, The Orphan's Tale actually hit the New York Times bestseller list on March 1st of this year, which is not just cool for that reason, but March 1st is exactly 10 years to the day since Commandant's Girl came out. It's my first book, so it was pretty cool. I just wanted to finish up with a few thoughts about, uh, you know, right now there's a lot of books, a lot of good, really good books being written about World War II and the Holocaust. And a lot of you, if you're like me, I'm reading a lot of those books. They're still very, very popular. And so it gives me occasion to think of why that might be. Just a few thoughts. So first of all, as I told you at the beginning of my remarks, after communism ended and that wall fell, there was suddenly not just exchange between East and West, but a lot of archival resources that were available to us as researchers and writers that had not been previously available. And I believe that has spawned stories. The second reason is that the generation of survivors has gotten up there in years. And I believe that there is an impetus to capture and tell stories in whatever form, fiction, memoir, that we can while they are still here. Finally, as a writer, my goal is to take you, the reader, and put you in the shoes of my protagonist and have you ask, what would I have done? And I believe that World War II, with its dire circumstances and its stark choices, is really fertile ground for storytelling. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Pam Jenoff and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what Janoff's writing process is like and if she plans out the twists in her books before she sits down to write. I typically, I start with an image or an idea in my mind. Now there's a reason, I'm, I'm gonna get to answer your question, but there's a reason I'm telling you this way. There's two, kind of two kinds of writers out there. I don't know if you've heard this, plotters and pantsers. Has anyone heard this? So plotters are those dear souls who start at the beginning of a book and they write a perfect sentence and then they write another perfect sentence and they just keep going until they get to the end of the book. I know some of those people. I'm not one of those people. I'm a pantser. Pantser stands for seat of the pants. Pantsers, what we do or what I do is I have an idea in my mind I open a computer or turn on a computer and I go bleh for like 60,000 words for like three or four months and the worst junk imaginable comes out onto that screen and I'm telling you someone described it as throwing up on the page like it really is you just you know, let it all come out and then you fix it later and it's the worst way to write a book because the editing is awful I don't recommend it to anyone but it's the only way I can do it so I know the beginning I typically have some notion of the end, and depending on which book we're talking about, I won't ruin the end of any book, because I know people have read different ones. I might have some idea where the ending is going to wind up. 
Um, and then there's the dark middle. So for example, did anyone read The Last Summer at Chelsea Beach? It was my book before this. And that's a really fun one. It is a World War II book set on the home front in Philadelphia and Atlantic City. So it's a little bit different. I had actually started that book 20 years ago. And I, that one, I knew the ending. Like, I knew the ending to that one. Um, others, like, it's a little fuzzier. And there are twists that come up as I'm writing that surprise me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's not, it depends. Our next question is, when does Pam Genoff find time to write? Anne Lamott once said that before children, she couldn't write if there were dirty dishes in the sink, and after children, she could write if there was a corpse in the sink. <laughs> and I, that pretty much sums it up. Like, um, you know, I have teaching writing kids, I, all three. I do too many things and none of them well, I like to say. But the truth is, I really love all of those things. Um, if I hit Powerball, I would still do all three, I would just do them slower, you know? So I really, really, it, it's a love and a joy. It's kind of juggling. So I've switched from practicing law. I started teaching law school about seven years ago. I'm on the faculty at Rutgers, um, which is a wonderful place, and it allows me a little bit more flexibility. So my perfect world of writing, I'm a short burst writer. If you gave me eight hours I, in a day, I wouldn't know what to do with eight hours. I'd, but if you give me 45 minutes, I can find something to do with it. So I would rather, if possible, touch paper seven days a week if I could. Um, one time I gave myself something called the 100 Days of Writing Challenge, where I said, I'm going to write every day for 100 days. And I got to the 100th day, and it felt so good that I just kept going, and I was 299 days when I finished that particular book. So it was really good for me when I could do it, you know, when, when I could absolutely do it. I'm a morning writer. I can only write in the morning. Um, so, you know, I, I, as, many, as many mornings a week as possible um, around the other constraints of things. And on airplanes, right? I mean, uh, sorry, one more thing. I can, I have written in castles and writing retreats that are on mountaintops. I have written in my car. I have written in my doctor's waiting room, and I can tell you every coffee shop in a five-mile radius of my house, whether they open at 6 or 6.30 on Sunday mornings, because I'm going to be there with my nose pressed against the glass. So that somehow it gets done. This audience member wonders if Jenoff had a good understanding of the Holocaust before traveling to Poland, and if her perspective changed at all. So I grew up in southern New Jersey in a in a fairly like a, like a decent Jewish area. I mean, it not, I'm not you know maybe like 15 percent or something, but still you know. Uh, so and I had a Jewish ed, you know Hebrew school and all those sorts of things. So I grew up with the narrative. And by the way, I don't think it would be unique to a Midwestern situation. Uh, I mean, my husband's from Central Pennsylvania, and I'm not sure, and we're interfaith, and I'm not sure that he had much education in that. So I don't think it's necessarily geographic, but. I had a certain background, and then I went to Poland, and I found the story that I had learned about the Holocaust not wrong, but the story I was told was very black and white, good and bad. It was a very rigid story. And I went over there, and first of all, I found all shades of gray, right? Um, so, you know, in terms of the way that the Poles, for example, consider themselves victims because they were occupied and three million Poles died the way that people had helped in ways that I had never heard of before and just this whole range of stories. And so one of the things that I try and do in my books is show the gray areas in people. So my 
German characters are human, my Jewish characters are flawed, my ordinary people on the street are everywhere in between, and I take a lot of flack for that because I have gotten emails saying, you're too hard on the polls, or whatever population I'm talking about in that book, I've gotten emails saying you're too easy on them. So I please, you know, none of the people, none of the time in doing that. But it's, you know, I really do feel that. The other thing that was really interesting in Poland was you're, you're living with right by the history and it takes nothing. You know, an old world siren will go off or there'll be a crowd amassed and suddenly you just want to run away and hide because there's that sense of vulnerability. It made me wonder, if I was an ordinary Polish person during World War II, what would I have done in those circumstances? So I don't think I would have helped the Germans, but I don't know that I would have been a hero, especially now that I have small children. You know, I'm not a brave human. I think that Dorothy should have stayed in Oz because it was easier than getting back. I mean, I thought that when I was little. I'm being a little bit silly, but I mean it. And so. I'm not sure, I probably would have hid in my basement for five years. So it gave me an appreciation of the individualized response of every person to what happened as opposed to you know, a big swath of black and white. This question is about Pam Genoff's research process for her novels. There's really three questions about historical research when you're writing. How do you do the research? How do you incorporate the research? And how do you not screw up the research? And those are like the big three. So I mean, I was on a panel last year with two women's fiction authors. And one of them was like, yeah, I kind of just sit down and start writing. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, like I, because I have all this research. Like, there's this whole other job that goes along with historical fiction. Now, I do know authors that do all the research ahead of time until the research, as one said, is literally sewn into her skin. You know, she does it all. I do a bit of research, and then most of my research is contemporaneous with what I'm doing. Um, so, so I find different pieces as I go and as I need them, because different parts of my brain do research and write. And if I can write in the morning, I could probably research at night. So there's other bits that can be done there. And research can be a wide range of things. I mean, it can be going to the place, although you know, some people go to Italy four times for a single book. I can't do that, so I have to rely on other means. There's a lot on the internet, the databases, the maps, the old periodicals, the photographs, the correspondence. I have a great library system at work, you know? So there's a lot of different things that I can use in researching a book, just briefly. Then when you ask about if sort of what I find ever changes where I'm going, that's really how do you incorporate research into your book, because the historian in me, I, I read history at Cambridge, I have a master's in history, and I love the history, but you can't take the history and do a big dump into your manuscript, because it doesn't work for the story. In fact, recently, my publicist said, do you have like an excerpt about the Jewish circuses? And I thought I did, and I went all through the orphan's tale looking for this chunk of material about the Jewish circuses. It wasn't in there, because we had edited and woven it in throughout the story. So one thing is, I can't always put all the history in that is interesting to me, right where I want it. There's a question, though, of sometimes do you bend history for the sake of fiction? And I'd like to give you an example. When I was writing Commandant's Girl, um, I had this elaborate history from the day the Germans marched into Krakow until the liquidation of the ghetto, which is about 18 months. And my then editor said to me, 
That's all well and good, but for the sake of the story, you need to get to the commandant by page 75. And so 18 months became about six weeks. This is also true of The Sound of Music, where it seems really, really, really quick, but it's about 12 years of history. So sometimes you do have to make those calls to bend things, and then it's best to note it in the author's note, because otherwise people think you screwed up, which is how you get to my third point. There is a mistake in every single one of my books. No, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but there's, and no matter how many times I, I research and how many people I have check me, there's always someone finds a mistake. They used to send me an email about it, but now they find the mistake on Wikipedia. Let's start there. And then they go on Goodreads, Facebook, or Amazon, and they say, aha. You had that perfume in June 1919, but they didn't really start wearing it till July 1919. That's what people do. Um, so these are all things about writing historical fiction, but I love it. It's okay. Another audience member asked Jenoff what she's been reading lately. Well, let's see. I do read a ton. I've, I've picked up a ton of books this year, so it's just testing my memory. If you're looking for historical fiction, The Two Family House by Linda Loewigman, um, the Girl from Krakow by Alexand Alex Rosenberg, Alexander Rosenberg. The Chilbury Ladies Choir, which just came out, is really, really good. Um, I could go on and on in historical fiction, but I actually read really across genres. And so in suspense, I love Mary Kubica is wonderful, Heather Goodenkalf. In women's fiction, I love Kathy Lamb. I'm trying to think, I mean, books, here's my better suggestion, because I could go on forever. There are some really good groups online where people talk about what they're reading. So there's one on Facebook called Great Thoughts, Great Reads. You can just find me and I'll put you in the groups. It's not my group, but I can show you where it is. And every Friday, all the authors and all the readers talk about what's called Friday Reads. Everyone says what they're reading that week. I literally do this. I go to Great Thoughts on one browser, and I go to my library's website on the other browser. And I go click reserve, click reserve. And that's how I find what I'm reading. So, but feel free to email me for suggestions also. This question is if Jenoff used writing as a tool to deal with what she experienced in Poland. Maybe subconsciously, I've never thought about whether it was a catharsis or not. I mean, I actually had a tremendous experience in Poland. I don't want to make it sound morose. Let me, let me be honest. Krakow is a stunning place. It was never destroyed during the war. You know, there are UNESCO World Heritage Sites. They love Americans there. It's, I mean, it's a great place. The local Poles open their homes and their hearts to me, and I'm still friends with them to this day. So while the Jewish experience was a tremendous part of my years over there, it was only a part of my years over there, and I got to experience the full array of the culture. And I have a, I have a deep love for the people, the country, and the time there. And if, if I could get on a plane tomorrow, if I could break loose and go, that's the first place I would go, definitely. I don't see it. In, I, I recognize fully the complexities of the history, but for me, it's a place of love. This question asker wonders what Pam Jenoff is working on now. I'm working on a book that is inspired by, it's not their story, but it's about 12 British women agents during World War II who went missing in occupied Europe and you know what really happened to them and whether or not someone betrayed them. So. Another audience member asks if Jenoff writes anything other than novels. I do write law review articles for my job, but 
not that. I, I am, should do more of that. But um, so I do. I do write other things. But when it comes to actual creative writing, I'm kind of a one-hit wonder. Like I can't write kids' books. I can't write YA. Although I do have a fun story. So. I was asked maybe five year, four years ago, a, a writer I knew, Christina McMorris, she said to me, I'm putting together an anthology um, of short stories. And I said, I am not a short story writer. I told you, I just do novels. Then she told me who the other writers were in that anthology, said, I'm a short story writer. <laughs> so the book that came out of that, I just have to tell you, was called Grand Central. And Grand Central is an anthology of 10 short stories by women historical fiction writers who, and all the stories passed through Grand Central Terminal on the same day in 1945. So the stories are lightly interwoven. And if you're looking for good authors, good other books, the authors in that, the foreword was by Kristen Hanna, Jenna Blum, who wrote Those Who Save Us, Allison Richmond, who wrote The Lost Wife, um, Sarah Geo, Sarah McCoy, Erica Roebuck, Karen White. And we had a big launch at Grand Central, and we're all really are like sisters. And it was just the best experience as a writer. So yes, I do write, I wrote a short story as well. This question asker inquires if Pam Jenoff's background in law ever plays a role in her novels. Well, I, I haven't done much with my books, with books with the law necessarily. I'm still writing, this, processing the stuff, I guess, from 20 years ago in Poland. Um, but I did write one book, The Things We Cherished, and it featured a Philadelphia lawyer, a young woman, and she is called upon to defend an el elderly Holocaust survivor, um, er, sorry, an elderly man who was accused of turning his own brother into the Nazis. And it's a mystery about there's an antique clock and whether or not he did it is hidden in the clock. So she was a lawyer and there's a trial, but that's as close as I've actually gotten to writing that. What the law brings me, well, so I do take writing into my, into my, for my legal students. I take the creative writing into law school and I can use the things I've learned as a writer about jumpstarting creativity and those things for my students. The biggest thing the law gives me as a writer is the ability to revise because as a writer, I have to take other people's feedback, such as my editors. And she doesn't give me solutions, she just gives me problems, right? And then I have to fix them. And you have to take other people's feedback and be able to incorporate it into your own work um, in a way that rings true to yourself. And I think having had my briefs ripped apart when I was a lawyer probably gave that to me. The other thing that being a lawyer gave me, I don't believe in writer's block. And here's why. When I was a lawyer, if I had said, oh, I'm just not inspired to write a brief today, like I would have lost my job, right? So I treat writing like a job for that reason, because I think it just has to get done. And I think that comes from being a lawyer before. Another audience member wonders if Jenoff ever uses her personal experiences or family history in any of her novels. So let me say at the outset, I was very fortunate, although all my grandparents were from Eastern Europe and the former, former, you know, Russia, former Soviet Union area, they were all out before World War II. So I did not lose anyone in the Holocaust in my family, and those stories come from the survivors I met rather than my blood relatives. However, I'd love to share with you two places that my own family story have, has come into my books. 
One place is the Grand Central Anthology. Um, so my maternal grandmother was born in Russia, but she grew up in China in the Jewish ghetto, ghettos of Shanghai and Harbin. She came to America um, as a young teenage girl. She actually lied to get into this country. As, so she was really an illegal immigrant, and she thought till she died at 94 that they were going to send her back. She had a lie about her age. And she came into the United States because her father was over here, um, and she came via China, Japan, Hawaii, made her way east, and found her father married to someone else, um, you know, thinking she was going to bring her mom over. And I wrote, I fictionalized her story in Grand Central in the anthology. So that was one case. The other one that was so fun was The Last Summer at Chelsea Beach. So I told you it, it's a story set during World War II in Philadelphia and Atlantic City. My mom is from South Philadelphia, and she was my research assistant on the book. You know, she told me everything. She read the manuscript. She said, no, it wouldn't have been this street. It would have been here. And it was super fun working with her. My dad was from Atlantic City, and he passed away five years ago, so I didn't get to talk to him about his background. But I went to Atlantic City, and it, it, was, it was interesting. I went to the Atlantic City Library in the middle of winter. There were like tumbleweeds going down the street. And in the library there, they have physical archives from of, of the war, where and not in microfiche, but the actual documents. And they talked about, you know, how do you dim the boardwalk lights so in case there's an air raid, and about Camp Boardwalk where they train the soldiers. And so that was another part of sort of family history that I was able to bring into the books. This question is if Jenoff likes writing or law more. With her success, why hasn't she become a writer full-time? I don't consider myself in law anymore. I'm sort of a lapsed lawyer because I have been out of it for about seven years teaching. And, you know, unlikely, I shouldn't say this, but unlikely I'll probably go back to being a full-time lawyer. Um, I adore teaching. I love Rutgers. My students are hardworking and unentitled, and I will help them with whatever they need. So I actually do love law. Um, I could probably write full time, but first of all, I like health insurance a lot. Um, and <laughs> secondly, you know, writing is a very solitary business. I like the sociability of being at school in my office and seeing people. And writing is writing's a tough business. I mean, it's really good right now, but that's after 10 years of highs and lows. And having the day job, while it adds to the stress, it actually calms down some of the jitters about the business, right, about the whole thing. So I think I'm going to, I think I, it's worth the, you know, I kind of work for, I feel like I work for myself in both places, and I love it, so it's kind of worth the stretch for right now. So 50-50 on the like thing. This audience member takes a moment to thank Pam Jenoff for the important and life-changing stories she tells in her novels. Thank you so much. That really means the world. You know, when I'm in the dark middle of writing a book, well, like I am right now, and you know, I get up bleary-eyed to try and get some writing done, thinking of what you said or that email I get from someone, it really sustains me. And there are times that writing about the war is just almost paralyzing because it's so daunting. And just one example comes to mind. How many people have seen Band of Brothers? Remember Band of Brothers? I think it's the finest thing ever put on film. And episode eight, Why We Fight, is when they liberated a concentration camp. And I remember watching that. I was in the middle of writing Commandant's Girl. And I said, I stopped. I was like, who am I to be writing dinner parties in Krakow when this was going on like 40 kilometers away? You know, and the thought sort of stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, well, because there really were dinner parties going on 40 kilometers away, you know, so, so that was how I came to terms with it. But it's still, 
you try and do it justice, you know, and try and get it right. And, and I really, really appreciate that. The last question of the night comes from an audience member who asked Jenoff if any of her works have been optioned for the big screen. That's what we call the from your mouth to God's ears question. <laughs> um, no, all film rights still available. Every so often I'll get this like, hey, the, a producer got in touch and then I IMDB the person and it's like an NYU film student or something. You know, once I heard, oh, Nicole Kidman's write, reading one of your books, I've heard that before. Um, but you know, it's such a long shot. Although there are many excellent World War II books that are in production. I think The Nightingale is in production. I think The Lost Wife might soon be. Um, so I don't give up hope, um, but you know, my readers first, so. I teach a range of subjects. I teach legal writing, but I also teach evidence, employment, professional responsibility. So kind of whatever they need in a given semester, I swing around to. So I like it. It's good. So you know, I just wanted to say, um, first of all, thank you. And second of all, that the greatest gift of this internet age is the ability for readers and writers, for me the greatest gift, connect, not just like once a year where I say have a new, I have a new book out, but to connect on a sustained and ongoing basis. So I have readers now that I've been friends with online either and then meet them or I've met them before for years. So I really do encourage each and every one of you to find me online, Facebook or Twitter, email, uh, wherever you're hanging out. I'm always happy to Skype with book clubs, but I really hope that we can uh, keep the conversation going. So thank you so very much. That wraps up our Dakota County Library Galaxy event with Pam Jenoff. Make sure to catch our next Club Book Podcast with Lily King, who spoke at Stillwater Public Library on Tuesday, April 4th. Award-winning novelist Lily King is the author of Euphoria, one of 2014's best-reviewed books. King's popular page-turner is inspired by and loosely based around the fieldwork of famed cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.